at our work, we you know we use G Suite, and then I don't I don't really know how Google does it that I can edit a document at the same time as someone else is editing a document, but I'll still use the product, right? Because it gives me an, a, a very material benefit. And this product also it's not sold to me on the basis of its functionality, but on the basis of its outcomes for me. I think especially within the yeah, SMB environment, we're very guilty of explaining you know, the concepts of uh, investor man- management, the methodologies, the frameworks, the ins and outs of how it works. But uh, for the average client, most of the terminology doesn't mean much. But they're also not very interested in the details. They should be interested in the outcomes and what it does for them. Um, they have objectives, goals, and plans for their life. And the products we build should only be the underlying rails on which those goals and objectives are achieved. That's the, the winning the winning proposition. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world. And our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. In today's episode, we are letting you listen in on our latest 4x4 virtual salon, which are live conversations with the people shaping our world. It's four guests, four main questions, and today's theme is the democratization of wealth management. Your host, Ben Robinson, is joined by guests Sid Sagal, product manager at Hydrogen, Nikolai Hack, head of strategy and partnerships at Nucoro, Michael O'Sullivan, author of The Leveling and ex-CIO of Credit Suisse, and Shaja Lee, CEO of Rosecut. You will learn about the changing consumer trends, changing technology, new business models, and the new fitness landscape for wealth managers. And after you listen to this fantastic conversation, you can increase your knowledge to expert level by reading our new report, Digital Age Wealth Management. This report by Aperture takes a really detailed look at the technology and demographic changes shaping the industry, along with a very deep dive on the new business models and the technology solutions that can enable them. And since you are a loyal listener of the Structural Shifts podcast, we are gifting you 25% off the report when you enter a special code at checkout, which we will share this special code later on in the episode. Enjoy the show. Right, let's begin. So the first topic is changing consumer trends. And Sharjah, we're going to kick off with you if that's all right. How big is the opportunity that gets opened up by using automated investment services to target affluent or mass affluent customers? You know, how, By how much can we increase the size of the wealth management industry by by using automated investment services the, this this is a very interesting question because from the tech perspective they think everyone wants to invest and everyone deserves to invest maybe with one pound with 10 pound and it, it is made possible you know in the past 10 20 years by a lot of the first generation robot devices but if you look down you know in terms of the slice of the market of various segments let's call it like high net worth affluent and retail Based on the Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report, actually, Mike was part of the key contributors to that. It's uh, in the UK that 1% of the population, the top of the pyramid, owns uh, 3 trillion assets. And the next segment, 15% of the population, affluent, owns another 3 trillion assets. And the remaining 85% of the population owns 1 trillion, one third of either high net worth or affluent. This is why Rosecut see us as a mid-market uh, provider. We want to cater to the middle sort of 3 million. 
And the second point I would make is that um, wealth is fluid, right? Like it doesn't always stay with the same demographics or the same group of people. So wealth transfer is a big topic these days. And a lot of the older generation gives the, the wealth to the younger children who basically use an app for everything. If they don't put the money into a Rosca app, they will put it into a crypto app. So, you know, technology first is kind of how we see to capture these kind of opportunities. Fantastic. And, and Sid, I want to come to you next. So if digital channels, digital services are, are if you like, democratizing access to wealth management, what, what will be the benefit of that? You know, so if more and more people can access wealth management, you know, what will be, I suppose, the, the social benefits? Like Sharjah referred to, there's different layers uh, or different groups of investors, right? If you uh, uh, consider some of the affluent or mass affluent market, I think it becomes easier for them to access uh, sophisticated products which weren't available um, easier earlier. So, for example, you're getting access to like uncorrelated assets like uh, art or like structured real estate deals or private equity deals or even like wine. And those are all uncorrelated um, assets which uh, weren't available to that segment earlier. You had to have much higher base to start off with. So I think that's like a pretty big uh, benefit to that segment of the market. Uh, For the lower end of the market, for the retail market and investors who are just starting out, I think access to like brokerage and uh, simple investment tools has really made a huge difference, as we've seen with all the recent GameStop and all of the other trading things that are happening at the moment. I think like it's a mixed blessing, mixed bag with how some of these platforms are set up. There are some like, for example, like public.com, which is a good one, which is focused on building engagement and literacy and community around it. Whereas there are others which are built more on like gamifying it. And like, at least in my opinion, they don't always result in a positive benefit because it's not really a game. Like all these tools are really helping bring uh, wealth management to the fore in front of everyone. But I think we need to be a bit careful on on what the propositions are and hope that they uh, lead to positive outcomes for people. So if I were to summarize what you said, so that uh, it was slightly caveated, but basically, you know, Charger was telling us that there's a very large addressable market of people who don't have access to, to wealth management. And you're saying that when they do, they'll be able to, you know, get access to a wider range of asset classes, which will help them to diversify their risk or better manage their 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 portfolios to their risk tolerance and then you know financial literacy should improve so it seems like it's a pretty much a win-win situation yeah. so nicola why, why why is it still hard to con- to convince consumers to to sign up for wealth management services why, why is the cost of ac- customer acquisition still so high for example i think there is a bit of a misconception i think especially coming from inside the industry i think we often think that we need to educate consumers more and explain things better explain things more in more detail. But I'm not so sure that that's actually what will help us here. Um, if, if you look at some other examples, I don't know all the details of, you know, fractional reserve banking, but then, but getting, you know, but I will still get a mortgage to buy a house, right? Or, or uh, I get a loan to a consumer loan to buy a car, which rests on, on that being a thing. Or if you look at other pieces of technology, at our work, we, you know, we use G Suite and then I don't know, I don't really know how Google does it that I can edit a document at the same time as someone else is editing a document, but I'll still use the product, right? Because it gives me a, a, a very material benefit. So, and this product also, it's not sold to me on the basis of its functionality, but on the basis of its outcomes for me. 
I think we attempt to explain and educate people more. I think we're actually putting off potential clients more than we're encouraging them. So what really I think helps is if you have a UX that focuses on the outcomes instead of the products. I think especially within your yeah, SMM house, we're very guilty of explaining you know, the concepts of uh, investor management, the methodologies, the frameworks, the ins and outs of how it works. But uh, for the average client, most of the terminology doesn't mean much. But they're also not very interested in the details. They should be interested in the outcomes and what it does for them. Um, they have objectives, goals, and plans for their life. And the products we build should only be the underlying rails on which those goals and objectives are achieved. That's the, the winning the winning proposition, I think. Also, it means to break down, I think, a siloed approach between you know saving pensions, protection, investing. Again, we look at those differently because they're regulated differently. They have different revenue streams. Again, for the normal, average, especially mass market consumer, it's it's quite irrelevant because they only care about the outcome and they should care about the outcome. We should do the mental bridging in between you know, to get them there. Mike, I'm going to come to you next. And I, w- I want to ask you whether you agree with that statement, i.e. is the is the way to encourage more people to take wealth management services to portray those services more in you know outcome-based way, right? Where, rather than trying to explain to them how the, the mechanics of how the services work. And then the second thing I'd like to get your view on is whether or not the pandemic has accelerated the the democratization of wealth management. So, yeah. if you don't mind commenting on both of those, Mike. No, I mean I, th- I think I think these are these are fascinating areas, very apt in terms of everything that's happening with. Tesla, Bitcoin, GameStop, etc. So, so let me try and react. And to go back to, to Nikolai, you know, my, my experience is that is that the, the process and the detail matter when the outcome is negative, right? So it's only see, and I, I always, you know, you try and design something for when things go wrong, because when 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 you get a negative outcome, as many people who hold GameStop now the last two weeks have, then you got to go back and question. Your own decision making, the process, the the marketing, the messaging from your your your, your broker, etc. So I think detail and process are important in that regard. Broadly, on, on the the idea of the democratization of finance, I, I have kind of strong feelings. I I, would, I rather, in the context of what's happening with Robin Hood, I, I would rather term it the democratization of risk because that is what really is happening because you have large like hedge funds or individual investors who are effectively uh, selling risk to retail um, investors effectively that's what's been happening with with gamestop you know when we, we kind of analyze who's won and, and who, who has lost people are being exposed to lots of different types of risk they don't know they've never experienced before illiquidity risk in the, in the case of alternative investments herding and correlation risk so uh, I, I rather see this as the demo- democratization of risk. I also think we need to make a very sharp distinction between trading, kind of, you know, the volatility of markets, and uh, which is, I think, much more of a, an American than European phenomenon, and then the idea of wealth management optimizing portfolios, which is a much, obviously more sane and, and balanced approach. And I think anything that encourages people to have a balanced, optimized approach to their wealth is, is good and is useful. And that is, in my view, democratizing, uh, democratizing finance. So I, I, think, I think the idea of democratizing finance is also, someone mentioned financial literacy, and that's a huge area. You know, the OECD and the EU are beginning to, to get into this. And, and for me, that's the real barrier. You know, one, one of the projects I'm, I'm involved in is something called We Invest, Women Empowered to Invest, whose aim is to get women to invest more and to invest better. 
in that project, one of the things we found is that men and women have had these kind of glass ceilings to finance and that the finance world talks to them in math and jargon, etc., about what should be uh, you know, products and events that are essential to their lives, like their retirement, but that's communicated in a way that is uh, obtuse and intimidating. So for me, the democratization of finance is really all about clarity um, and open and transparent communication. I'm going to put this to you, Sid, right? Because um, I think Mike is, is raising a really interesting sort of distinction, right, between the democratization of wealth management and the democratization of risk. And my question to you is, if, if we sort of disembody wealth management from the service providers, i.e., you know, there's this big trend towards embedding wealth services and other channels, right, other distribution channels, do you think that we therefore increase the risk of democratizing risk instead of democratizing wealth management? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there is a possibility, like, for example, if you um, offer a brokerage to a provider who doesn't have, like, ownership of, like, the risk in the book, then he is not going to be too worried about offloading it to as much as as many people as possible. All he's worried about is customer acquisition or, like, making a cut uh, on that. So, like, where the risk sits is a very important sort of... Uh, consideration and so is the fiduciary kind of responsibility like exactly what are you uh, giving to people what and who takes the ownership Mike mentioned when things go wrong so I think just simply um, embedding some of the wealth management products without having a strong team to take on the fiduciary and uh, risk and responsibility is actually going to be a bit uh, harder and a bit uh, more complicated than, than it seems yeah in a model where you know, you have banking as a service provider sitting between the regulated entity, the custodian, and the customer. How does that how does that play out in terms of risk management? Then is that like who manages the risk? So uh, usually it'll be like the the banking institution, the institution that has the the license um, that will always uh, manage the risk. That's it. it's on their books. They're the ones who report to the regulators. So either the platforms or the banking service, the software providers usually don't have the risk on their books. So that that has been, uh, I think, probably uh, one of the reasons why sometimes embedding some of these wealth management services into other platforms takes way longer and way more complex than people think it is. Right, so we're going to switch to the um, second topic, changing technologies. And we're going to come to you, uh, Nikolai. Which are the technologies that are, that are most important in your view in this democratization of wealth management? Do you think it's um, analytics and the ability to use people, the trail of data that people leave as they start to use, as they interact with digital channels, to do that whole personalization at scale? So what was once the sort of preserver, preserver of the ultra high or the high net worth individual being, you know, democratized. So personalization being democratized. Yes, absolutely. I think, I mean, if we really talk about, you know, core technologies or deep tech, what is it then? I think, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's cloud computing, it's parallel processing, all the things that, you know, on which most of the advances lie in, in, in the entire software as a service industry generally, of course. But yes, of course. And, and you know, that along brings with it the use of a lot of bigger data sets and the extension of that is, okay, hyper-personalization, definitely. And there especially, I think we can, um, draw conclusions also from what's happened in other industries, right? Especially e-commerce, media consumption, where hyper-customization is the norm by now, where the offering you get is significantly different from what somebody else consumes. Especially think about your, you know, your Spotify recommendations and your curated playlist you get there. 
we, for example, you mentioned Exxon Investing earlier that we built in the UK. And there, for example, you know, based on an extremely high degree of automation, the platform builds a unique portfolio for every uh, individual, for every client, for every single client. And then this portfolio is managed on an, on an individual basis, on a daily basis, potentially. And that only works, of course, because you have extremely capable server farms. Uh, in this case, it's the, you know, could be Amazon or Azure on which the proposition is hosted. And then uh, at the moment of when you need to make the calculations to rebalance the portfolios, you know, you just rent a thousand more workers, you know, that Amazon gives you at that very second or a couple of seconds it takes. So that's based on that personalization becomes a possibility at scale at very low unit economic costs, of course. I think it's something else that I'm quite excited about is uh, the context generation through natural language processing. And, and more importantly, actually, natural language generation. We work with a firm called Personetics, and then there's a cognitive investment technologies, a, a smaller UK player. They do very interesting stuff where, yeah, with the means of, of course, sifting through, again, big data sets, you give the client context to what's happened in the market, how it has affected their portfolio, much like an advisor would, of course, right? So, but again, by bringing down the cost through uh, skipping the human element, you are able to have a mass market proposition. And I think the last one, of course, is classical automation, right? And straight through processing along the entire chain from onboarding, investment proposals, reporting, et cetera. Um, and especially there, I think it's also about the fluidity between the products, as I've mentioned before, saving investment pensions, et cetera, but also between the channels of you know, self-service and the advisor and that that becomes one experience. I think that's also, it, it will be a key in, in, in propositions going forward. I'm going to come to you uh, next, Charger. And I want to ask you, so Rosecut uses, you know, still it's human beings that manage the investments. But if if we listen to um, Nikolai, we can personalize portfolios and we can build a bespoke portfolio for every everybody, right, that matches their risks and so on. And in addition, it sounds like we're getting closer and closer to doing the thing that's much harder, right, which is, if you like, the emotional aspect of wealth management, giving reassurance by using natural language processing and so on, right? So... Do you think there's still going to be a role, you know, indefinitely for, for human beings in the provision and delivery of, of wealth management services, especially, I suppose, for, for you know, mass affluent and affluent customers? Yeah, that's a really um, question that's been debated, you know, within the digital community for the past 10 years or so. And I would say, first of all, I want to make a distinction between personalized advice and personalized portfolios. So I think for financial advice, it should always always be, you know, personalized to your, you know, circumstances, your long-term life goals, um, your income level, you know, your different even per- wealth personality, right? Am I a legacy kind of person? Want to maximize my wealth and pass down to my children in the most tax efficient way, or I'm a freedom type of person? We just want to earn enough, right? So in this case, we help you to define what is enough for your personal circumstances. And all, I'm of the view that, you know, this is much more important uh, than personalized portfolios. The traditional industry has come a long way, you know, from bespoke the portfolio and doing advisory services. And frankly, sometimes does not actually mass efficiency or the return for the client. You know, it's like you are a chef and asking the customer to detect how you cook the meal. You know, it does not always work very well. So for us, we we think standardized portfolios, you know, with certain 
customization element, but not necessarily bespoke or personalized, but might really attract the affluent uh, people. So this is why, you know, our discretionary offering has a standardized element, basically model portfolio, and then let you, you know, pick some interesting semantics, you know, very much um, related to what Seed was saying that the alternatives can play an interesting role here. So, you know, going to going back to the personalized uh, financial advice bits, if you think about uh, the different type of client needs, as well as sort of the cost of human advisors, these are the two most important things that's driving industry change. So, you know, people joke about going to see a wealth manager is like going to see your dentist every year, right? Like it's the right thing to do, but it's painful. You know, private banks throwing Michelin lunch and dinners and entertainment to make it slightly better. But still, not everyone wants to sit down to go through two hour, you know, integration <laughs> of, you know, what's what's your 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 assets, liabilities and those those kind of topics. So we actually found a lot of people enjoying a quiet time, sitting at home, just going through that step by step at their own pace, rather rather than being interviewed by a wealth manager. So I think a digital service is in a great place to capture those kind of preferences who are the sort of incremental wealth to the industry. And second is about the cost of advisors. You know, like since RDR, there are, there is such a de- decrease in the qualified advice space and advisors are retired, you know, basically retired with, with some of the older kinds. So if banks can't make a living by providing bespoke advice to affluent people and then sort of dropping those clients, then digital providers can't either. And this has been evidenced by, you know, some of the first-generation robot advisors having a hybrid model, hiring financial advisors to provide advice on hourly basis. So Rose's view is that we, first of all, want to automate as much as possible, right? Like to build a beautiful user experience that, you know, as close to social media experience where you have the emotional element as well uh, as possible. Of course, you know, we still have uh, a long way to go. And then we use human as insurance. So anything that the automated platform doesn't do, we have the human advisor to pick up the slack. And and over time, with the trend and the learning from those sort of unanswered questions, you patch it up into the system and make it more and more sophisticated. Um, Mike, I want to come to you next because, um, you know, so far we've been sort of thinking about the wealth market and we've been splitting the demographic almost by how much money they have, right? So are they affluent, mass affluent and so on? But it's, but it's, it's more complicated than that, right? Because as you, as you said before, there are other demographics you can layer on top, such as, you know, you know, women have different preferences, but, you know, to men, younger generations have different preferences to older generations. And so if we assume that some of these robot advisors, you know, they have a high cost of customer acquisition today, for example, you know, and they, and they target, say, mass affluent or affluent, you know, what is their possibility to, to grow with the demographics, whether, you know, whether, whether they slice them in different ways, you know, so they, you know, they target younger generations who are mass affluent, who may over time accumulate more assets. So, so I think that there's maybe uh, two things here. One is, is, is the various changing demographics, and then the other is the business model and how you, you capture that. And I think some online banks and online digital wealth, new uh, entrants to the digital wealth management marketplace have made a mistake in paying up far too much in terms of customer acquisition costs. Uh, and, and you see that in some of the results and some of the fund runs they have. To, to kind of give Rose a little push, you know, the model of kind of focusing where the 
the ex experience of the team is, which is sort of high net worth works because there is, you don't rely on sort of buying ads and reaching out on social media. There, there's an element of kind of personal contact as well. Uh, so first of all, on, on the demographics, I think in general, the wealth management industry is very poor at demographics. And I, I kind of scold banking colleagues in old banks by saying, you know, you, you go to a supermarket or a shopping center or go to the high street and look at how well luxury goods companies or retailers target different demographics. And banking doesn't do that. It's lazy in that regard. And in the future, I think we will have more attention on younger uh, niche, uh, an older niche, the topic of longevity would be a really big issue in wealth management, uh, pensions, the accumulation or accumulation of wealth. And then also women as a demographic uh, is an area that, that, you know, banks, in my view, haven't given any attention to uh, at all in terms of the services. In terms of business models, I, I don't think that digital banks who are currently focused on mass market can really move up to the higher end for, for a whole load of reasons. One is you need to hire uh, humans, you need to hire bankers with experience, you need to have different products, a different product range, and, and probably a different platform. Uh, and I think most of the people in the high net worth space and upwards, they want uh, a focus on them. They want something that's sleek in terms of the service, but that's less transactional. That's a very, very different proposition if you're kind of more of a mass banking app. Uh, and, and, and I think the problem for those companies is that they are increasingly going to be encroached upon by what individual banks are doing in the, with their own digital projects. Just um, one follow-up for you then. Does that mean you, you think we'll see churn? So, so in other words, as wealthier, as, as customers get wealthier, they'll, they'll switch from robo-advisors potentially to, to private banks when they demand a different type of service, you know, in person and so on. I, I, I think that will be the case depending on, on the extent to which they get wealthy or not. And, and, and I think what will also happen is that wealth managers, some wealth managers will become better at IT, so better back office. Nick has talked about some of the solutions, better uh, reporting, Re really basic things that many wealth managers don't do very well. And I actually think the biggest revolution would be product and access to what I would call kind of the, the portfolio of the future, which will have more private assets, probably more crypto, and be a bit more international. And if you look at the offering from new and old players, they not many of them have that. So, Seth, I want to come to you next. That, there's a nice segue there because Mike's talking about sort of broader portfolios that extend beyond some of the traditional assets. And so the first part of the question I want to ask is around the, the role of tokenization in opening up some of those asset classes. I think, you, you know, you... You briefly touched on that before, but if you wouldn't mind picking that up, that up again. And then the second part is around gamification. So what is the role of gamification in terms of, of keeping people engaged with wealth management services? Because I think I always think about banking as having this engagement challenge, which is you know, it's principally a transaction-based service. Therefore, it doesn't have high levels of engagement, and therefore, it's open to being embedded in channels that have higher engagement. So the two-part question is tokenization, and do you think gamification might provide enough engagement to keep people using wealth services from wealth managers? Good questions. I think the tokenization can definitely help, uh, especially with um, alternative assets 
like allocating ownership um, in a fair and equitable and a transparent uh, way. So when you're talking about art, when you're talking about wine, when you're talking about um, obviously crypto, um, I think tokenization can really help with access to some of these uh, assets uh, which were reserved for the ultra high net worth uh, in the past. And I think that will definitely be a trend that takes uh, takes hold. In terms of uh, gamification, um, I think uh, there's definitely uh, room for it. I mean, for me, I think financial literacy is a really important aspect. And um, like academic research has shown, like, for example, that in Europe, only about 30% of the population has even basic levels of financial literacy. And it's about the same in the U.S., uh, and these are affluent, like OECD um, nations. Uh, simple things like time value of money, about saving, about inflation, teaching people about, like you know, like having a savings account and like having an emergency fund. Like you know, just inculcating some of those habits, those basic financial literacy habits, can make a huge difference in their uh, financial um, outcomes. And I think gamification for positive cases like that is really important. I think you have to be a bit careful where gamification doesn't become about getting people to trade more. And I think that is uh, that is something that I'm quite wary about. But in terms of increasing the literacy, getting people to save more, getting people uh, invested more in equities, but more as a portfolio rather than like, you know, individual stocks, like teaching people about those sort of risk return trade-offs and better financial habits is where gamification can help. Okay, so I'm going to switch now to new business models, and I'm going to kick off with you, Mike, if that's all right. I'm going to ask you, you might argue that wealth managers or wealth management potentially has lower engagement than some other services, right, through, through which you could distribute financial services, but it has a high level of trust, and you can use trust to aggregate other services, but we see very, very few examples of aggregation models and wealth management, by which we mean, you know, using the pull of an existing customer base to, yep. to aggregate wealth and non-wealth services. So, so why don't we see more aggregation models from big, big private banks, for example? You know, why doesn't why doesn't UBS, for example, aggregate you know other services? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good question. Uh, a lot. The answer for me lies lots of culture and lots of. You know, we're, we're beginning to get consolidation in wealth management in, in the UK, rest of Europe, Switzerland, where we are today. And, and the logical question is, you know, why doesn't Google buy UBS or why doesn't Amazon buy Credit Suisse? Because what you're buying is you're buying the, the brands, the, the top level expertise. You come in, you clear out the all the tech problems. And, and I, I, I'm not a tech person like Nick or, 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 or Sid. I'm a kind of bystander in that regard, but I see kind of various things happening across the, uh, the industry. And there are big barriers in terms of banks doing tech well. There are lots of interests on the part of people inside banks in not having tech disrupt their own jobs. And then I also find that many tech people, particularly in fintech, have very logical solutions to what they think are banking problems, but, but actually... What they don't spend enough time thinking about is the idiocy of the, the banking problem and the fact that you know banking customers like to, to have uh, humans rather than robots addressing them, etc., etc. So, so there's lots of reasons why the two don't meet. And I think that the most interesting space would be crypto because that would be uh, tech. I can call it tech banking or tech money designed by tech. Uh, so it's entirely consistent within the within the ecosystem, and um, 
crypto operations for trading, for asset, digital asset custody. So that, that space is a very interesting kind of proving ground. But yeah, could you come back to your question? There, there should be a logic in some of the bigger wealth and asset managers who trade at quite cheap valuation to, to similar operations. Yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. Just being, being bought by, by tech companies or tech entrepreneurs who, who can potentially cut the banking costs in, in, in at least in fact by introducing a kind of a much more rational tech-focused approach. Finally, just to not to, to go on too much, I think there is, I think the, the disruptor to the industry will be consumer goods companies and platforms getting into, into finance, probably from the bottom up. They will have a scale, and, and they've already solved the customer acquisition problem, right? Uh, so it's a question of just just starting with a range of sensitive products. So, so that's where the threats going to come from. Okay, which which is a super segue to you, Sid, because your business model is basically in facilitating that, right? Which is facilitating non-banks to offer banking services, or in this case, wealth yeah. management services. Do you see that already happening? You know, or do you, you know, what is the level of demand? For embedded wealth management services, and you kind of alluded to this earlier on in one of your one of your answers, but it seems like it might be more difficult than people think. So, would you mind elaborating on that as well? Getting started with the wealth management product um, is is hard. Uh, when I had a startup and we were setting up a brokerage, it took us almost two years to get a license, get all the legal agreements, get everything set up. I think having like an embedded like finance option, like some of the new platforms like ours, which are coming up. Uh, make it a lot simpler. They kind of abstract away some of the complexity, some of the compliance, some of the security. So I think that whole process can uh, really uh, be sped up. There are still roadblocks, and those are related to like who takes on the fiduciary responsibility, who has the licensing, and that is always going to be a bit of a problem in wealth management. So, for example, like with some of the embedded services that we are offering, we are finding that a lot of financial advisors are calling us about them. They already have the licensing, but they want to make it like they want to have a mass acquisition channel. And so, for example, they want to offer like an aggregator or like a small calculator or risk analysis services on their website. And that serves as a like acquisition tool for them. So I think in those sort of uh, cases, having like an embedded finance solution works well. We're also finding that platforms that are starting to take on more of the financial services burden of like a particular segment. So for example, like, you know, like freelancers, for example, there are people who are building like payments services for freelancers because a lot of them don't have even like bank accounts. And so we're setting up facilities to like have uh, uh, bank accounts, but then why not add uh, an extra feature where you can also allow them to save easily. Um, so, you know, having an embedded uh, solution, which they can get up and running uh, quickly is like a real value add to those types of uh, companies as well. So we're seeing a mix of both. We're seeing both financial services providers uh, who want to acquire uh, people cheaply and non-fintech companies as well who want to start dipping their toes into offering some of these services to their customers. Um, Nicola, I'm coming to you next. So, so I want you to, if you don't mind, expand on, on this topic by talking about some of the interesting business models that you see, the, the kind of customers that are coming to Nucoro. And I want to just frame it slightly by talking about, you know, these many-to-many network type 
um, models that, that Sid touched on there, you know, like, can you take a pool of freelancers and, you know, help them to save between, you know, to build a collective savings pool, for example. So I just wonder, you know, another other models like subscription services and things like that, that we start to see emerge in, in, in wealth management. I think it's a very interesting question because it's only remotely related to tech, actually, you know, the business model, and which is a much more strategic topic and less technical and often overlooked, I think, actually, that there's a lot of potential for innovation. Yeah, totally. I think the fee models are an interesting one. Um, Rosebud is a great example, right? Like a freemium entry-level model where you get your toes in, and that probably then draws you into the, the, the actual corporate position. But generally, the move from AUM-based models or even performance-based models, I think, to, to flat, predictable, um, subscription-based fees, which is what consumers are by now very much used to, right? And a lot of the other services we consume, digital and non-digital, uh, starting, you know, with, again, I mentioned it before, Spotify subscriptions, Amazon Prime, everything else, obviously. I think another, and that relates a bit to what you just said, I think it's this, the idea of building ecosystems and making connections with other services across, selling across, across the services. You think of the challenger banks there, like Revolut does this natively within their app, you know, they they switch another another tile and then there's insurance, they switch another tile and there will be investor management. That's, of course, and they build a lot of these things themselves. But not necessarily, that's, that, that needs to be necessary, right? You can still offer this functionality, but rely on someone else to actually have the, have the capabilities of technologically doing it, but also from a regulatory perspective doing it. It will still be the service that you, you will be the gateway to that service. So building connections with other distributors to in a, in not only the direct approach, I think also plays into that. And there's often, there's a bit of a fear and a concern around being, you know, commoditized in a way. But however, and also coming to Michael's point earlier, right, the, the biggest attack vector comes from, for example, the big tech players. And they will not, Google will not become a bank, you know, but Google or Apple will be the biggest distribution partner you will have and you can possibly find if you are a bank. Um, so overlooking that, I think, is a, can be a lethal mistake as well. And then I think it's also about, it's very strategic um, and, and very business model. It's about building a flanker brand, maybe, or a sub brand, and really moving away from and giving up a bit of the brand equity you have, potentially. Because having an established brand is a, is a great asset, but it can also be a liability if you want to reinvent your offering and reinvent also you know, probably the target groups that you have. The biggest players are doing it, right? With Marcus by Goldman Sachs on JP Morgan is rumored to launch something in the UK. Of course, you know, that's also big firms with a lot of brand equity, um, but still, I think it plays to think about that also for, for, for mid-sized market players. And all of these, and I, I'm aware of that, like all of these are a bit, a bit harder steps, and I think we often a lot more comfortable you know, to tinker with internal processes and tech and all the stuff that the clients don't really touch. But I think it really, I think it pays to be bold and obtain some of these more strategic transformation plays really. I want to put the next question to you, uh, Charger, which is which of the incumbent financial institutions are the most progressive and making the most progress in this area? So kind of picking up on Nikolai's point, who, who is who is taking the risks? You know, so we've heard about Goldman Sachs launching Marcus and now Marcus is also the platform was also now offered to, to others. So, so Goldman Sachs is potentially taking some risks and being quite progressive in this area. Who else do you think is, you know, is, is kind of leading amongst the incumbents? I, I probably wouldn't say there's there's one uh, single leader in the space, and we have seen sort of a, a, a influx of incumbents trying in this space in the past five years. 
I think, you know, UBS spent a huge amount of money uh, launching the smart uh, UBS Smart Invest. And then, you know, actually the head of uh, that, that program is one of those advisors. So we, we've learned a lot from that, their experience. And uh, Kuts, you know, have launched their mobile app with the basic functions a couple of years ago and uh, sort of piloted a, a program called Kuts Invest. At the beginning, it was only open to Kuts clients and then eventually was distributed under the RBS and NatWest name for, you know, RBS NatWest Invest with £500 to start with, benchmarked against um, Nutmeg that I suspect. So I think one of the key things is that uh, people in the incumbents, you know, are worried about uh, things like, you know, wealth transfer and how not to sort of be left behind with the digitization of the service. Um, but they face two challenges. One is a legacy IT system. It takes forever to <laughs> build something new and then bolt onto the old gigantic machine. Right. So in the case of UBS Smart Invest, it took them 18 months to do that. And for Rosemont to have a fresh state-of-art tech stack, it took us like six months, right? So this is the level of challenge. And second, in my view, it's always easier to start an evolution. You know, you can be an independent, almost like a single skill creature and then improve, you know, rapidly iterate your offering along the way, then starting the revolution within organization because you always are fighting against the sort of, you know, people with who prefer the old ways of doing things. And that really success, uh, goes go successfully. And another point is that, you know, a lot of the times incumbents treat the digitization as a back office problem. So they see it as an IT project that, oh, store a bunch of engineers, then it's going to work. You know, at one of the major banks I worked, I really, you know, squeezed into the digital offering team out of my normal KPI and try to contribute front office perspective. They think it's an architectural issue. But it's not only an architecture issue, it's a user experience, client experience issue as well. So I think this is where you see happen again and again in other industries where independent, small, you know, scruffy uh, startups eventually overthrown the, the established companies. And this is, you know, personally why I made the career switch and trying to figure out, you know, independently. Um, but that said, I have not seen, you know, I, I would say Marcus is probably the best example of um, mostly investment bank <laughs> trying to get into a more mass market. And they have their a good sort of strategic plan of investing to not make, doing a saving product and now moving to investing. And what about somebody like Standard Chartered? Because you know they, they seem to be have a similar kind of playbook, right? With Mox, and I think they've got this new platform called Nexus, right? Which is a bit like Marcus. And, and I, I suppose this is open to anybody to answer, but but it seems like you know Nikola was making this point that if you're a large bank launching a new kind of your own challenger brand is a little is a way of if you like transferring some of the brand equity you have into a vehicle where. To your point, Charger, you don't have the problem of legacy IT. And to your point, Mike, you don't necessarily have the same cultural obstacles yeah. to, to introducing change around, particularly around business models. So is, is that the best way for an incumbent to, to kind of face up to this digitization threat? Maybe. I, I think one key element there is also that from a cultural perspective, it's the only way that innovation on a technological level can work. Just because you, within the organization, you have 
cultural bottlenecks, but especially what Georgia said, right? We have the legacy system bottleneck that just prevents you from being able to do any meaningful change on a at a scale where it makes a dent in what is the consumer outcomes in the end. So by and I think there is good and bad ways to go about it. Now I have felt and we deal a lot with um, the that the innovation labs or the digital arms of uh, of, of, of yeah. the retail banks have set up. And that's kind of also to judge us on the point a bit. It's also the way of looking at technology as something that happens outside the business and then somehow goes back into the business and then change happens. But it, it's, I think it's great as a channel to introduce innovation or right? source ideas for innovation, but it's not what drives true business model transformation. If you want to truly build a digital first proposition, that the business and the tech have to evolve and be built in sync. And that's exactly what challenger brands are doing. This is what Revolut is doing. This is what you know, the what Rollstar are doing. Of course, right? It's what all, what all of us are doing when we when we are building a, a new startup, but also a new a new technology stack. So by yeah, creating a, a sub unit or an outside unit, I think it's it's probably the only way to do meaningful change. It really then has a you know a, a transformation curve that is not just you know so. Like a band aid to what is essentially, uh, yeah. you know, a very heavy wound. Because you're because you're right. Because you know, Charge, I made the point that a lot of banks kind of view digitization as a back office function. Yeah. And, a, and and then on the other extreme, you've got a lot of banks that sort of see it as some sort of innovation function, right? Which you know, a plaything for a group of people who aren't really you know key decision makers in the organization to work with, right? And it needs to come. It needs to be in the very top of the corporate agenda. And so, how, how do you do that? How do, is, how do you make it top of the agenda? Do you hire people that aren't bankers to join the board, for example? Maybe, maybe I'll chip in. Um, you know, Please. The, the, the Rosecott experience opened my eyes to how bad the big banks were with tech and how good a small focus team can be. Uh, I'm now going through the same experience with the We, we Invest startup uh, in terms of you know, me, me learning about lots of different, different areas. So, so I, th- I think uh, you know the, the decision here would, would be made by the CEO of, 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 a, of, a, of a large bank. So I think the kind of thing you want to do is to take some of your senior executives, make it clear to them this, this is a, an essential part of their career that they're not just being part in in operations. You want to incentivize them. You arguably want this to be geographically remote from headquarters to, to give a, a sort of a mental break. I think we need to put tech and banking people together on, on parity. Maybe I think have a lot of interactions with, with customers and potential customers just to make absolutely clear what the problem you're trying to solve uh, is uh, and, and, and try and do it in that way. And, and maybe also you put the bankers through tech classes, entrepreneur class, and teach banking to the, the tech people as well. So it's it's something I think in which people have to be very, very invested. It should it should pay dividends. And do you think do you think banks can attract the right tech talent? Because you know, if, if the competition for tech talent is global, because tech is part of everybody's business, or you know, arguably the most important part of everybody's business, can banks hire those that tech talent, or should they be using third party suppliers? Like hydrogen and nuclear, more than they do today. I know. Let Nicholas say that and answer that. <laughs> I mean, tech talent is already very expensive, and in, in London and Zurich and, and Zurich, tech talent is is as expensive as, as banking talent. I, I kind of think what you want to hire, just my, my limited experience, to hire kind of project managers who have a taste of both and can actually 
advance the, the project. It'll kind of fluent in both languages. But that, that's that's not a, an expert thing. All right, quick message, and then we will get back to the episode. Are you ready to take your wealth management knowledge to the next level? Then you need to get your hands on Aperture's Digital Age Wealth Management Report. It will help inform your strategic thinking by explaining how the wealth management industry is changing in response to digitization. And the information packed in this 100-page report will help you make better decisions about what software systems can best meet wealth managers' changing needs. The report also includes the market map, which is Aperture's proprietary methodology for evaluating software solutions, which ranks 13 wealth management software vendors. And since you are a loyal listener of the Structural Shifts podcast, we are gifting you 25% off the report when you enter the code 25MARKETMAP at checkout. That's the number 25 and then market map spelled out. 25MARKETMAP at checkout and you can visit aperture.co to get access to the report. Now back to the episode. And then, Sid, a, qu- a question I want to ask you, right? Because I'm sorry to keep coming, coming back to you on these questions of embedded banking, but I just think it's, it's fascinating as a new business model type. I'm just wondering, you know, if, if banks or wealth managers in this case or pro banks, right, don't control the customer interface, i.e. that's controlled by another brand, how do they continue to have a profitable business where they have some control over pricing, some some ability to upsell and cross-sell? Or do they have to accept that they, you know, they're, they're just balance sheet providers or, you know, or, or custodians or whatever, right? Um, or regulated services providers, you know, what is the role of wealth managers in embedded banking world? And then how, do, you know, if, if they do have a profitable role, how, how do they, how do they bridge between, you know, being a back office supplier and, you know, having some engagement and, and continued role with the customer? Yeah, it's a tough uh, problem for them, right? And that's why some banks have like uh, not uh, uh, gone down that route of just providing um, the services. Like uh, in the US, you see like most of the fintechs um, are using only a couple of banks like Evolve or like Green Dot um, yeah, as well, the back end. Yeah, across river in your case, right? No. Yeah, across river. So there's just like a handful of banks, but they're none of the big banks, right? But for these like smaller banks, like who had a much smaller customer base, uh, for them it gave them access to a huge amount of customers which they would have never had um, access to previously. So uh, for them, it uh, it uh, kind of made sense to build like a tech stack specifically for like integration for the fintechs, where it's like a scalable kind of like solution for them. So they're still making um, like uh, money and they don't have the customer acquisition costs. So they can like it can still work for them. I mean, it becomes obviously a bit harder to like cross sell um, anything. But I think just in terms of the scale that they can access, it's like huge and it's worked really well for for people like Cross River. I mean, their scale is just like grown dramatically in in a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. So I actually looked because we've we've got a report coming out, wealth management report next week, and I looked at some of these smaller banks in the U.S. and some of these guys have got you know like return on equity of like forty percent plus, right? Because yeah. as you say, right, they don't have to acquire the customer; they just you know they're just providing you know regulated yeah. services. But it doesn't seem to me that that would work very well for an incumbent, you know, with yeah. the kind of cost base that incumbent has. So, is an incumbent? This is a question to anybody for, to anybody to answer. Is an incumbent therefore with a large customer base, sorry, with a large cost base, excluded from participating in embedded uh, finance 
or is there a way to kind of leverage the brand to make it such that if I if I if I'm if I'm using a, a third party service, I still would want the service from a given institution. In other words, there is, is there a way to sort of still differentiate when you don't control the customer channel? And how is that possible? Is that is that a tech question? Is that you know? There's just like one aspect um, I'll give to one example, uh, which is um, like the, uh, like the Apple Card offering, for example, right? You had uh, uh, Goldman Sachs was still involved in that, and it, uh, they weren't um, at the front um, of that brand o- offering. But what they were able to do is were able to take on some of the uh, risk assessment of like clients and maybe offer it. I mean, and that worked out poorly in some examples, but, you know, the, uh, people were able to see that they were able to get cards like much easier, uh, for example. It also gave them like access to a huge um, channel um, as well. So I think there are some uh, possibilities of like being embedded and still having the visibility and some control on the proposition that you're offering. It becomes challenging. I think now, like uh, a couple of the banks are trying to offer banking through Google um, uh, as well, and there there've been some deals that have happened over there. But they'll just be in the background in that in that case. But it's a huge customer acquisition channel for them. Does anybody else have a view on that? Because it seems to me that implicit in what you're saying with the Goldman Sachs Apple tie up is, you know, you have if you like two premium brands. Like, is it yeah. is it a, is it just about? building brand or is it do you think do you think there's a tech answer to it i suppose is another way of putting it like if if i if i can build sufficient contextual information and i can and i can serve up relevant offers and content and so on even if it's through somebody else's channel can i still carve out some differentiation that makes me more than just a commodity supplier of regulated services is that and and i'm I'm curious to know if you think that's a tech challenge brand challenge or whatever I'll chip in a few of my observations. On the tech side, I think it's really challenging because of the legacy system and the executive team may not have the courage to, you know, put down a couple of billion and uh, do a complete overhaul. Um, but what other things they could have done is to really sort of reshape the sort of incentive system. Uh, one thing that uh, a private banking colleague put to me in terms of a private banking model, um, she described it as a hair salon model. You know, every advisor has their own desk and has their own support and look after their own group of um, clients. So it started this, you know, a bad habit of banks. I'm talking about specific private banks poaching each other's high producers and pay them a lot of money and hoping to attract the book. Um, but overall, it's not a very structured effort of growing the, 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 the organization together. So, you know, this is one thing they could think about how to incentivize team effort you know, rather than <laughs> rewarding long wolves. This is this is something that we can think about. And second is that uh, when you face, you know, regulatory pressure and margin compression, rather than uh, doing the reactive thing, it's, it's more important to be really clear who you are focusing on, right? Like it, it doesn't mean you are a big bank. You should be um, just thinking, okay, I'm catered to everyone, have a tiered offering, like some of the British banks of retail, affluent, and then high net worth and ultra high. You, you really need to think about how you're going to do that, right? Maybe outsource your lower tiered clients to some partners and then focus on the, you know, the, the most important segments that you have the right skill and expertise for. So, you know, UBS went through the process of, well, let's try to dab into affluent. No, actually, we should just focus on ultra high. And uh, a lot of other banks feel like they should focus on ultra high now. 
but there's only so many ultras in the world, right? Like you can even slice down the target market to uh, entrepreneurs or certain industries or, or just really have a good view of what you can do, you know, on a more organized effort and reinforce your brand in that. So, yeah, so this is a non-tech perspective. Yeah, no, and I think, well, the, the cultural questions again, right? So, Mike, you seem to be have strong opinions on culture. I mean, is that is that possible? Like moving from the hair salon model, kind of, you know, split, you know, if you like outsourcing customer management, all these things, again, to be quite alien. To, well, it seemed to me when I speak to private banks to be quite alien to their thinking, right? Because they still think that they are, you know, they are in control of the customer and the fulfillment of those, of those customer needs, right? Absolutely, and that, that's even reinforced by the individual bankers. I mean, they, they, they will jealously guard their, their clients and their, their customers. And, and I think just to go back to your original question, which was I think if you have a high cost base, can, can, can you put in place some of, some of these uh, changes? I mean, my, my, my response to that would be to ask why you have a high cost base. Is it, is it a, a defunct business model? Is it the wrong blend of, of bankers? Uh, and that, that that kind of thing. So you know, it's, it's, when you when you end up in that situation where you, you have uncompetitive margins, outsourcing tech might be a solution, but the real problem is lies elsewhere. It lies in, in core management, and maybe uh, institutional cultural issues that are very very deep seated. And I think even if you you know if you walk into a wealth manager in say Switzerland, you know they all look the same from the outside. The people who meet you all look the same. To the extent that it's becoming a bit of a, a bit of a parody, I think. and that maybe tells you that these cultural elements are very, very strong, and that trying to change them uh, will need a lot of resistance. Maybe just one. Yeah, sure. We could add something there because also coming to your point, Ben, you said you know introducing certain elements or changes is the foreign or, or uh, is met with a lot of skepticism. What I find interesting is that a lot of times it's very difficult for them to articulate what is actually the, the value that clients see in us. They don't, they, a lot of them don't, don't really know actually, is it the, you know, because uh, a rather trivial element like customer servicing, for example, on the back, on the middle of the slide, for example, you, you might think that it's very important, but your, but your clients maybe don't see it as important at all, right? It's maybe other elements. Maybe it is for the status symbol of the brand represents, or it is the, the user experience or the personal relationship with your advisor. It might be a, very wide range of things, but a lot of times they don't know. And I think that's the starting point where a lot of the analysis has to actually first figure out what is it actually that your clients like and see as the value that you add. And then maybe you can actually only have a discussion around not doing all the things that you think are necessary to do. What is the ultimate role of a wealth manager? Are technology solutions sufficiently sort of advanced that a wealth manager can outsource the entire thing to, to a technology ecosystem and then what would be the USPs that remain you know so if if you like if, if I'm a wealth manager and I'm in, in charge of the brand can, can I can I can I source everything else from an ecosystem of no, tech no, providers no. fintech providers etc yeah I think at the very high end you can't at the high end what some banks are beginning to do is to bring corporate finance bankers into relationships with families and family offices and that kind of stuff can't really be commoditized it can't be installed through text or so if someone because i think at that level clients they want security and they want advice and they want the bankers to know them intimately and you can't do that remotely you can't do that through technology 
and that kind of advice on you know networks or finding a business to buy and sell, that's not something to which tech has got a, a solution. And, and I think also the, the for senior bankers, they, they, they often play a sort of sparring partner role. So for the very top end, I don't think that's possible. I, I agree with, with Nick and Chaja. You know, for all of the, the, the operating stuff, it should absolutely be made as, as efficient as, as possible. But if it if so, you're, so if I interpret that correctly, you're saying that beyond you know the people that serve the ultra high net worth individuals, mm. or, you know the family offices, whatever, yeah. everything else theoretically could be because you're saying ultimately it's a question of um, scale and therefore lowest unit cost and access to networks. And you know, uh, I think most of it could be. I think the obviously as you go down the scale of client uh, base, the more technical. I think, I think you also want to think about content and education. Content is not something the banking industry does very well. You know, most banks, people can't look at Twitter. No bank I know does research on TikTok to, to be to be study uh, funny about it. So I think there's, there's, there's actually huge scope there, not to make things more efficient, but to make things a bit more clear and more entertaining as well. Okay. Interesting, say entertaining. How do you make wealth management more entertaining? Just one example I have like about gamification. My my girlfriend is learning German at the moment, and she uses the Duolingo to do this. Uh, it's a very very popular language app on the on the iPhone. And every evening, so there's a daily uh, league basically. Every evening before twelve o'clock, if she manages during the day, she will go online and just rush in some sessions to improve her scoring for that day to end up you know, among the top 10 of her league. I think there's a lot of literature around you know, what are the best ways to learn a language, what are the most efficient ways to memorize vocabulary, etc. You theoretical approaches to that. The app solves it in a very different way, right? It, it is a very compelling, fun way to bring you back to you know, getting you know, maybe 10 more words or something. You know, where we, don't, we don't have to reinvent the wheel in global management. But to draw uh, inspiration and uh, insights from other from other uh, sources, and you know, maybe the language learning app from where you take it from, I think that that's actually a starting point because we're we're a bit behind. Um, others are a bit ahead of us in, in making it making their experiences more fun and entertaining. How would you gamify wealth management without introducing you know democratization of risk to, to Mike's earlier point, which is it seems to me you know if you you can't gamify, I want a higher return on my portfolio because then you're changing risk so it's what is 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 gamifying what aspect of wealth management it's savings because that seems external to wealth management. right absolutely you're totally right it's, it's, it must be different levers at that only the, the risk lever um but then you have again you know we have we see approaches like that already right it's about roundups roundups yeah saving we see uh, fun ways to uh, you know once at a goal and then you see just visually how that goal materializes in an app and it becomes more, more tangible for you i think there is ways that are not really too risk-taking and more risk-taking. Maybe, maybe there's an intergenerational play, right? You know, parents or grandparents helping, you know, uh, children, grandchildren to save, to invest, you know, sensibly and so on, yeah. which might help with the intergenerational, you know, risk of attrition. But I, don't know I think the social aspect can be like, um, can, can be uh, very huge, especially for the new generation. And I think we saw that with like, you know, some of the Reddit boards and stuff. Yeah. But if that can be harnessed in a more positive sense where you have like, uh, like, you know, peers and like maybe like some interesting people who are like uh, talking about finance, talking about investments, like kind of, and you're 
kind of working with a group to kind of solve like your financial problems. I think that is going to be some of the new kind of fintech platforms that we're uh, we're going to see in the future. And we're already starting to see some of those. They're just starting to get funded now. So Great. Okay, so we're, we're almost out of time. So I think all that remains is to thank uh, the four of you very, very much for participating and taking part in this and um, see you at the next 4x4 virtual salon. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.